that is truth. Through your sacrifice, for your atonement, your substitution for us under the wrath of God, through that, your grace and mercy flow. Your justice is satisfied. You're free to love freely, generously, lavishly, eternally to those who receive it, to those of you called to yourself. And so I pray this morning that you would fill our hearts again and again and continually as we're here with more sights of how wonderful you are and strengthen us for our week ahead. Thank you for calling us together this morning. And now speak to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everybody. Uh, if you're new, I'm Mark Alderton, one of the pastors at Sovereign Grace Church. And uh, hope that we can meet all the new faces that are here and uh, fellowship with you, see if there's a way we can bless you. Um, Dan Luvano, one of our other pastors, was going to uh, be here today and lead in this particular moment, but um, some of you probably already know, Dinah's mom had a brain hemorrhage, and so and she's quite old, and so there's a lot of concern there about getting near the end of death, and so they re- immediately flew down there, uh, Dan and Dinah to go and care for the family, care for the mom who's conscious some of the time. Um, And her brother is there. Um, Neither one of them know the Lord. Um, So they're also there to encourage them. As uh, death seems near, that's a time when many people think more about, is there an eternity? Is there something after death? Um, And so perhaps the Lord would move in their hearts. And so that's what their hope is. So that's where they are this week. And I'm going to lead in prayer in a moment just for them. Um, Also, just for Dan, he's not stopping his work. He brought his work with him. Um, You know Dan, he's the faithful guy. He's going to plow through everything. He'll do that when he can. He's also supposed to preach next week. So we'll see. Um, (laughs) But we're just going to pray that the Lord blesses them down in Texas. That's where they are right now. So let's, let me do that. Lord, we, uh, we pray that here in these critical moments uh, where there's been a major health crisis and potentially the end of life, we pray that you did something miraculous in Dinah's mom's heart and in her brother's heart, that they might know that there's a Savior, that they might know there's an eternity to be had in your presence an eternity of joy that comes through Jesus. And I pray that you would reach into their hearts and, and open them up to hear those things that they've heard before. But I pray again afresh in this moment. Give Dan and Dinah wisdom for how to serve, um, strength for how to do it. They have their own health challenges. We pray that you'd minister to them and that this week would be full of Moments that they can look back on and say, there, there, there you were. There the Lord was working. Give them many moments like that. Strengthen them. Help Dan to continue to work uh, as he's able to do that. And we pray that you would strengthen him and get him back here. Let them know what's wise, whether to stay, whether to come back. But it's all in your hands. We give that into your hands. 
And we also give the preaching moment into your hands in, in a few moments where we want to be receptive to all that you have to say to us through the book of Hebrews. And pray, Lord, that even this morning, each one of us will be touched here and there in the specific ways that we need. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, with that, we do have nursery. So I'm seeing nursery people standing up and going back there. So if you've got little ones, it's through five years old, am I right? Three. Do I hear four? No, it's three. <laughs> Thank you, all the ladies who are serving there. Well, we are going to look into God's Word this morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn in it to Hebrews chapter 5. <clears throat> we are restarting our series on Hebrews. We ended that uh, at the end of December. Well, we took a break to do a different series. And so we're going to jump back in. Um, and to bring us back up to what the book of Hebrews is about, it was written in the first century to... Hebrews, that is, Christians of a Jewish origin. They'd come out of Judaism, they had believed in Jesus as their Messiah, and they'd gone all in. Um, but as things happen in this world, once you attach yourself to Jesus, you find yourself sometimes at odds with the world. And so that's what they were experiencing, some level of opposition, persecution, they were going through the trials that are common to all of us, and they are growing through trials that were specific to being believers in Jesus. And so they were rethinking it, some of them. They are wondering, is this worth it or not? Uh, should I bail out? Should I go back to Judaism? Should I just go back to nothing, uh, something that's safer for me? And so that was, this letter was written to them to shore up their faith. Uh, to help them to see that it is totally worth it to be following Jesus and that whatever you suffer for his name's sake is not really in the end going to be something that you'll regret. And so the theme of the book of Hebrews is this constant attention to Jesus Christ and all that he is for us and how he's superior to everything, that he's greater than everything. And so he keeps on going after the person of Jesus and so we come to chapter 5, which is the beginning of a very long meditation on Jesus as our great high priest. That's not something we're familiar with. Uh, well, I came from a Catholic background, so I have some appreciation for what a priest was, at least in that context. That's not the same as what it was in the Old Testament. So we're going to need a little help to know why a high priest deserves about five chapters worth of the book of Hebrews, but it was a very big deal to the Jewish believers, the Jews who had come over to, to trust Jesus. So this is the beginning of a very long meditation on Jesus as our great high priest. And so we're going to start with it this morning and find out some of the basics about why that's an important thing for us to know about. So we'll read through chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, uh, and then I'll Ask God one more time for his help. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Lord, we ask for now for open ears and open hearts to receive all that your spirit wants to teach us. Every one of us is in a different place right now, came, came in today with all sorts of different things on their mind, plans for today and tomorrow and this week. And now we ask that you would arrest our attention and give us sights of the glory of Jesus Christ through this word that you've written to us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, what we just read was further support for a statement that was made at the end of chapter 4. The statement was this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then our passage starts with the word for, meaning we're about to hear why or the reason that we can come with confidence to this throne of grace and receive grace and mercy and help. Why can we do that? Why should we have confidence that we can do that and get that from God? I don't know about you, but mercy and grace and help sound pretty good to me. <laughs> I need those things. So do you. Mercy in the form of forgiveness for our sins and a life forever with God instead of judgment. Grace in the form of wisdom to live well. Comfort in distressing situations, strength, courage, contentment, joy, even when things are hard. Help to get through all of life's situations reasonably sane and intact. <laughs> we need those things. The first century church needed those things. But what's the basis for confidence that we can go to God for these things and expect to receive it? Our passage today answers that question. It tells us what Jesus did is the basis for that confidence for all those who trust in him, what Jesus did. The explanation comes by way of an analogy 
Two things are compared so that we can see how one is like the other. And in this case, what's compared is the high priest's role in ancient Israel and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Those two things are compared with one another. There's something about who those priests were and what they did that describes who Jesus is and what he did. And the end result of this comparison is that we see Jesus, what he, what he, there's similarities, but there's one major difference between him and the priests, which is that he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And that means mercy grace, and help from God in our time of need because He is that source of salvation. So first we'll see what there is to know about the high priesthood of Aaron, who was the first one. And then we'll see how the high priesthood of Jesus is like that because He's called a priest. And then we'll make connections to our lives along the way. So let's get started with the first part of the analogy, which is the high priesthood of Aaron. That's described for us in verses 1 to 4. There's three things to notice about it. The first is that the high priest was an intercessor for others. He was somebody who acts on another person's behalf. So verse 1, For every high priest chosen from God among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. I love the way that is worded. The job description of the priest was to act on behalf of men in relation to God. There's so much generous care wrapped up in that statement. It assumes two things about us. First, that the relationship between man and God, between humans and their creator, is very important to God. It's so important that God created a role called the high priest whose central function was to cultivate that relationship between God and his people. The priest acts on behalf of men, of God's people, the nation of Israel at that time. He acts on their behalf in relation to God. There's something about that relationship that he steps into and he says, I'm going to make sure this works. that this is intact. The relationship matters to God. And second, the presence of this role implies that the relationship between man and God has been damaged somehow. That all is not right with it. Someone needs to step in and act on man's behalf. And at the end of the sentence, we find out what the damage is. The high priest, what he's doing when he's acting on our behalf, he's offering gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what's wrong. That's what damaged the relationship. Man's sins are many deviations from God's good and perfect will for us. They create a problem. Sin causes a break in our relationship with God. Isaiah 59.2 puts it this way, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, 
and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. And the consequence of being separated from God is death. The wages of sin is death, according to Romans 6. And that makes sense because God is the source of life and the giver of life, the sustainer of life. And so if we're separated relationally from him, if there's something wrong between us, then that has to unravel somehow into death. It's what explains physical death. It's also a spiritual death. That's a problem. That's why we need somebody to step in, to act on our behalf. But here's where we see the compassion and the mercy of God. Because rather than just let everybody experience that outcome, he creates this role and he appoints someone to fill that role for the sole purpose of restoring that relationship with him. The sacrifices for sins, these are sacrifices for atonement. They make things right between the person and God. The guilt is dealt with by allowing, in that case, an animal to be put to death instead of the sinner. And that way he intercedes, he acts on behalf so that that person is no longer separated from God, but they live again under his favor. The high priest is the, acting as the intercessor. Now, before we go on to the next observation of this priesthood, let's consider the implication of this for Christians. I think that acting on behalf of men in relation to God is a wonderful description of the ministry of every Christian. Peter says in his first letter that Christians, genuine followers of Jesus, are a holy priesthood. That means the modern equivalent of the ancient priesthood is not the pastor, it's the Christian. We don't offer up sacrifices for sin in our ministry. We aren't anybody's savior, but every believer has been chosen by God to act on behalf of others in relation to God in some way. To put it another way, we each have a part to play in facilitating the restoration of broken and sinning people to the holy God. We do our part to help people find hope and life in relation to God. What is it to love our neighbor if it's not that? It could be praying for people's souls and praying for their needs. It could be showing compassion to the afflicted in Jesus' name so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. They might be teaching God's word to the little ones in the church or, or in your house. Any way that we're facilitating the restoration of people made in God's image, restoring them to God in some way, pointing them in His direction, then we're imitating His very heart. The fact that there is such a thing or was such a thing as the priesthood tells us His heart is, though you have sinned against me, I'm making a way for it to be right. That's generosity compassion, love. We get to be a part of that in our own different ways. 
as believers. So we've learned the job description of the priests. Let's talk about the qualifications. Very simply, he had to be a representative of the people that he was interceding for. That is, he had to be like them in order to represent them before God. So verses 2 and 3 of the high priest, it says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. There's another wonderful phrase. The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. The ignorant are those who just don't know what's right. The wayward are those who know it, and they do the wrong thing anyway. And he can deal gently with both. Why? Because he's just like them. <laughs> he himself is beset with weakness. He is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins also. So picture the setting why is it that we read that he, has, that he can deal gently? It must be because there's some kind of a temptation not to, right? So picture the setting. So Old Testament temple or tabernacle, you got a priest. Um, and it's a kind of a gory job. Um, it would be like working in a butcher shop. Um, there's a lot of cutting and mess and work. Um, and there's things to be burned up, and there's things to wash, and there's, there's ritual purifications, and then there's, there's blood to be sprinkled on the altar or on the mercy seat, and all this takes quite a bit of time. And so the priest who's doing this day after day after day, he can start to get a little jaded. He can start to think, you know, I wouldn't have to do all of this if there weren't so many ignorant and wayward people around. I mean, you're making my life hard. That's the kind of stuff that might go through my head. That's, that was my job. Isn't that the standard temptation of the human heart? Impatience, harshness, annoyance. <laughs> but the high priest's ministry is one where he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Why? Because he knows, I too have been ignorant and wayward. I am like you. I represent you before God as one of you, <laughs> not as somebody who's on a higher plane, the Holy One interceding for you. No, I'm on the same plane as you. We're going to the same God <laughs> for the same forgiveness. But I represent. I'm part of it. I'm among you. I mean, think about Aaron. He's the first high priest, the original one. What do we know about Aaron? <laughs> he helped make a golden calf for Israel to worship <laughs> while Moses is on the mountain. He goes up on the mountain. He comes back. People are dancing, worshiping Baal. There's this golden calf. Here are your gods, O Israel. And he says, Aaron, what happened here? And he goes, oh, I don't know. I put some gold in the fire and out came this calf. I mean, he's trying to like totally distance himself that he had anything to do with this. And yet, it was after that, God still made him the first high priest. God is generous. 
Now, he was repentant. He didn't just say, yeah, you can be priest anyway. It doesn't matter to me. No, there was repentance involved. But there's also forgiveness. And even the high priest needed it. So do we. Here's an application for our lives. A church is a place where the ignorant and wayward should expect to be dealt with gently. That doesn't mean there's never correction or hard conversations. Some things are just not okay, and there's got to be some talk about that. However, that talk doesn't have to devolve into harshness and self-righteousness. That is so tempting to do. And why doesn't it go there? Because we are all, in our own way, ignorant and wayward. And so we can deal gently with one another. We don't all have it together. I like the language used by one commentator on this about the high priest. He said, whenever he was tempted to pronounce harsh judgments, place intolerable burdens, or make excessive demands on other people, he would remember that he too was exposed day after day to the same hazards. That is a great thing to remember. It's a humbling thing to remember. We're just not different. We're, we're on the same playing field. That humility sweetens community. So the high priest had to be a representative of the people he was making atonement for. Here's one more thing to see about that. He had to be authorized to do it. Verse 4, No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So a man doesn't just decide one day, you know, I think I'd like to be the high priest. That looks like a pretty prestigious role. Um, So where are those robes? (laughs) No, he doesn't get to do that. God has to officially appoint him to do it. This is my role, and I have certain people that I want to be in that. It's God's choice, not his. But there's a word here that really caught my attention. It's the word honor. The high priest's role of acting on behalf of men in relation to God is an honor. No one takes this honor for himself. That means it's a privilege. That means it's a rare opportunity, one that only God can bestow on someone. It's like being the final torchbearer at the Olympic ceremonies. You know how they always like say like they got a whole chain of people that are passing the torch over, and then there's the last person who gets to take the thing and go up to what's usually a massive cauldron, you know, and light that thing. And, and as he's doing that, they're telling his story or her story, and everybody's like, yeah, that's amazing. And I can see this is a great honor for you to be the one to light that big cauldron. You know, so that's a, that's a picture of honor, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's like a special thing. It's a privilege. Well, to act on behalf of men in relation to God is like that. It's a privilege to do that. It's a privilege to be involved in facilitating the restoration of people to God. Think about the implications of that on Christian ministry to others. 
It's an honor to be involved with people who are made in God's image to help them be whole again, to find forgiveness, to find peace with God, because it's an indication of God's very heart for sinful and broken people. It's an indication of the value He places on restoring the ignorant and the wayward to Himself. And we get to be a part of that. That's a privilege. It's an honor. That outlook changes how we think about evangelism and outreach. It makes it an honor, not a duty. It's affecting my attitude today about something that Mary and I are going to do this afternoon. We're having some neighbors over for lunch after this meeting. And we, we've lived across the street for them for three or four years now. We haven't had that much interaction with them. But right before Christmas Eve service, we were dropping stuff off at neighbors' houses, and we talked to them for a little while. We found out two very important things. Number one, they are very open to friendship. And number two, they're Muslim. And so we invited them over to start up a relationship. Now, typically for me, my motive in doing that is because I know I'm supposed to. <laughs> I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian pastor. Here's an open door to relationship with somebody who doesn't know Jesus. So... <laughs> Invite them over, right? That's what you do, isn't it? Duty is kind of my motive for most of that kind of thing. But duty isn't the right way to think about reaching out to people. Honor is the right way to think about it. It's an honor to be involved in this couple's life and their little boy, to be maybe the first voice in their life that's showing them that Jesus is not who they thought he was and that maybe they can find hope and life in that, that one. That's an honor to be the person in that seat because we know a gracious and merciful God who gives us a future and a hope. They have yet to meet him. We could make the introduction. That's a wonderful thing. That's helping change my attitude about lunch today. Now, we've seen three important aspects of the high priestly ministry of Aaron and those who followed after him, and now we're going to see how this is similar to and how it explains what Jesus has done. So verse 5 starts out with, so also Christ, which is a heads up that there are parallels between the high priests and Jesus. They're not identical, one-for-one one sameness. But there are some important similarities, some principles at work here. Let's see what they are. We'll look at the high priesthood of Jesus. Beginning in verses 5 and 6, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as he says in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this tells us that like the high priests, Jesus is authorized to act on behalf of men in relation to God. He, he gets to be in the honored seat. He gets to be the one that's interceding for man before this holy God. He has the right to do that because God appointed, that, appointed him to that. And what a right he has because he is actually God's son. 
You are my son, he says. Today I have begotten you, meaning I have officially installed you, granted you the title, the position, the role. What's the title? You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, you'd have to be a pretty good Bible student to know who is Melchizedek. (laughs) I don't know anybody that gets named that. That's not in the kids' naming book, I don't think. (laughs) If you know Melchizedek, let me know. I'd like to be the first one. Melchizedek shows up three places in the Bible. One is in Genesis 14. One is in Psalm 110, and the other time, the most actually, is in the book of Hebrews, especially chapter 7. But he's a very mysterious person. What's important to know about him here is that Melchizedek in Genesis 14 just kind of arrives out of nowhere. He's just, uh, Abraham has been getting rescuing Lot and getting back all of his property, and he stops by and sees this guy named Melchizedek, and the only thing we really know about him at that point, there's more, but, but what, we, what stands out is he's called priest of God Most High. We don't know how he got that title. He just has it, and nobody challenges it. Abraham gives him a tenth of everything. He just recognizes this is, pre- this is the priest of God Most High. Um, the writer of Hebrews is saying that's Jesus. He is like that. That's the kind of priest he is. He's got this authorization, unchallenged authority to stand there as this intercessor between God and man. And that leads to the second similarity with Aaron's priesthood. Wonder of wonders, God the Son also became fully human in order to be our legitimate representative before God, became fully human. Jesus became a man to plead the case of man before God as one of us. He became one with us in our weakness, though not one with us in our sin. That's the difference. We see in verses 7 and 8, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now, lots in that. But it starts out with in the days of his flesh, right? Flesh referring to him being fully man. Like you and me. You even see the change in the language. Before, it's the son, it's Christ. Uh, those, are, those are titles But then here it's Jesus, in the flesh Jesus. That's his given name, his born name. After after Mary delivers him, he's this fully real human. And just how human he is is further described for us here. First, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now that is full of human emotion. We don't see that side of Jesus very much in the Scriptures. Loud cries and tears. And in the days of His flesh, so apparently at various times in His life. In the Gospels, we see Jesus doing a lot of other things. We don't see the loud cries and tears too much. 
what we do see is he's casting out demons. He's healing people. Uh, he's boldly challenging the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. We see him teaching the crowds, feeding multitudes, performing miracles, walking on water, raising the dead. And we can begin to think that Jesus is somehow above loud cries and tears, that, that nothing fazed him. There's a lot of things that phase us. Over the years, I've heard loud cries and tears over algebra. <laughs> but I've also heard loud cries and tears in hospitals and at funerals. And I've prayed with loud cries and tears. And probably you have to. Because that's a natural human response to distress. We might think Jesus is above that, that he can't relate to what it's like to be in that place, but he can because he was fully human. He knew extreme distress. And he responded with loud cries and tears like we do. And we see it most clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane because he was about to go to the cross. In Matthew's Gospel, it's recorded this way. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Luke records the emotional intensity of this experience. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. That's extreme distress. Because he knew Within hours, he would be arrested, beaten, spit upon, scourged, crucified. But more than that, more painful than that, was that he was about to be forsaken by his Father and his God on the cross. He was going to experience what it's like to bear the wrath of God for sin, sins he didn't commit, but that he willingly took responsibility for. We'll come back in a moment as to why he had to do that. But let me just point out here that Jesus, being human, had deeply human emotions like we do. He knows what it's like 
when you go through very distressing things because he has gone through a more distressing thing than any of us will ever do. He knows he's one of us, a human going through hard things. One more observation about his humanity is this statement, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Now that sounds like at one point he was disobedient and then he learned how to be obedient. <laughs> but that's not the case because Hebrews 4.15 reminds us Jesus was in every way tempted as we are yet without sin. So he was never disobedient to God in any way from birth to death. What it means is that he learned what it is like to obey God in every circumstance of life. He gained firsthand experience in doing the right thing whenever he was tempted not to. So as a child, he faced and he overcame childhood temptations. As a teenager, he faced and overcame teenage temptations, and then adult temptations. And then finally, most difficult of all, he faced and overcame his temptations in the garden as he felt the terrible impact of what he was about to experience. That's how he learned obedience through what he suffered. Jesus didn't get a pass on walking through the hard things in life. He faced those hard things, and then he overcame them. But sometimes it was through loud cries and tears. He can relate to us. He's human like us. And that makes him a representative that can be a high priest because he has to represent men before God. He can't be fake. He can't be a God, and then there's a little bit of man in there somewhere. He's got to be the real thing. He's got to be able to relate. And he did. He took on human weakness, human body, human temptations, though he never sinned. And he couldn't be like us in our sin because if he wasn't sinless, then he couldn't be the intercessor that he needs to be, which is the other qualification for the priests. Verses 9 to 10 put it all together for us. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? Again, it sounds like, well, at one point he was imperfect, and then he was perfected, that he had faults, and then they got cleared up somehow. But that can't be the case either, because he was always morally perfect. No, made perfect means he became fully qualified or complete to become the source of eternal salvation, to be the one who saves us. There were certain requirements that had to be fulfilled in a life that begins as a child all the way through to a death into maturity, and he has to live that whole thing out, and he has to do it sinlessly, and he has to be this intercessor 
Otherwise, he can't become the source of eternal salvation. I mentioned before that the high priests like Aaron were intercessors. They acted on behalf of men in relation to God. And I use the word facilitate. They facilitated the atonement because they themselves were not the saviors. They themselves were sinful. You know, they, they could perform the ritual that God had appointed for this temporary solution, if you will, to their situation, but they couldn't, they couldn't be the one that actually saves. They, they needed saving themselves. They were sinners. The animal sacrifices that they made, even though they were prescribed by God, they weren't in themselves sufficient either to save people. We're going to see later in Hebrews that the, the blood of goats and bulls isn't sufficient. It doesn't work to, to atone for sins. They're, they were only pointing to something else. It was a temporary thing. It was something that was pointing ahead. No, really, for, for human sins to be forgiven, you have to have a human who dies, who takes those on himself in your place. And the priests weren't that. They, I mean, they were human, but they weren't sinless. They had to be. They, they, didn't, they had to not have their own sins that they had to be atoned for. And more than that, this intercessor, in order to really save, has to be God in order to die for the sins of many people. Because only God himself can bear the wrath of God for multitudes of sinners. Jesus was made perfect in that by his life and death, in his deity and his humanity, he completed all the requirements to become the source of eternal salvation. He became the real intercessor, the final intercessor, the effective intercessor who could make us right with God by taking on himself the blame and the punishment for what we do, for making himself the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice that takes away the sins of the world. He was authorized by God to do it. He was a genuine representative of man, being man himself, and he was God the Son, so he had everything. And though he died, God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand where he ever lives to intercede for us as our great high priest. So we have the answer to our original question. What is the basis for our confidence that we can go to God for mercy and grace and help? How do we know that we can do that? Answer, because Jesus fulfilled all the requirements to atone for our sins completely and forever. He's the source of eternal salvation that the ancient priesthood was only pointing to. But realize that he's only the source of eternal salvation, it says, to all who obey him. In other places it says for those who believe in him, but here it says those who obey. What's the difference? It's because the genuine believer in Christ who receives reconciliation with God and restoration, that is a person who is genuinely repentant of their sins. They not only want forgiveness, they want to change. They want to obey God and no longer sin. Obedience is the sign that one's belief is a saving belief. 
It's the real thing. And this becomes a warning that the writer picks up in chapter 6, a warning of people who say they believe in Christ, but who then fall away. And so we're going to leave that warning until we get to chapter 6. But it's introduced here, this word obey, to get us ready for that. But today we end on a high note. If you're a believer in Christ, you most certainly have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who has interceded for you. His whole heart and soul was in it with loud cries and tears, prayers and supplications, the obedience of suffering. All of it was born out of his genuine love for God and for you. His genuine desire to step in on your behalf and make it right between you and your creator. He, he did that with his whole heart and soul. He couldn't do any more than he has done to prove the genuineness of his love to us. And so his invitation to come to him and believe and to follow, it makes sense. It's the right thing. It's the responsible, rational thing to do. Because he's, asked, he's, he's saying, come into this presence of God, this favor of God. Come in through what I have done. You must believe in that. But come. And if you have, then it has been made right. <laughs> and that's why you can have confidence to come before this throne of grace and find mercy and receive grace to help in time of need. And we will need it. Our time of need is every day. <laughs> in every perplexing situation, every sorrow, every fear... Everything that you need help with, which is pretty much all of life, you can expect to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need because of Jesus Christ and his priestly work. So believe, trust, lean in, draw near to him, and enjoy the reality that it is right between you and God. And then expect that in every situation, he's going to be there. He's going to get me through this. Let me pray. We ask, Lord, that you would do that in all of our hearts. You know how many options are on the table for us to run to for hope and get through the day. We don't naturally run in this direction, but we ask that you would help us. Touch each one of our hearts here. You know where everybody is at. Make Jesus even more beautiful to us as we think about these things. Thank you that you're so merciful and gracious that you have pursued us, the, the, the ignorant and the wayward, and made a way for us to be right with you, which you didn't have to do. Thank you for your generosity and your mercy and your love toward us. May each of us live in the good of it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise and sing about our great high priests.